If you don't have a Bible this morning, you're going to need one. So uh, we have some for you. So raise your hand. There's uh, guys coming down the aisles that have them, and uh, you can use this one for today. And if you don't have a Bible at home, we would love you to take this Bible as, uh, or, or stop by the info table. Actually, you can get a brand new Bible that you can take, and that will be our gift to you. We want you to read it. We want you, of course, to know it, and we want you most of all to come to know the author of it. So turn to uh, John chapter 11. <clears throat> John chapter 11 this morning. And there was a man uh, who was driving his children to church. And it was Easter Sunday. And so on the way there, he was trying to explain to them that Easter was when we celebrate Jesus rising from the dead. And from the back seat, his three-year-old very excitedly asked, does that mean he'll be in church today? <laughs> and the answer, of course, is absolutely. He absolutely is here because he is risen. And this morning, we celebrate the resurrection. The resurrection is the essential key to the gospel message. It's the fact that proves that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. It proves that his atoning work on the cross has been completed, proves that it was effective for us to pay for our sins. In writing to the Romans, the Apostle Paul says that Jesus was declared with power to be the Son of God by the resurrection from the dead. So the empty cross, the empty tomb, those are like the receipts that God gave us, telling us that our sin debt has been paid, right? that death, the tomb, couldn't hold Jesus, that he won the victory over sin, the victory over death. And ultimately, this is the foundational and the glorious truth that we celebrate. We celebrate the fact that in Christ, death and sin do not have the final say because they have been finally conquered conquered by Jesus through his suffering, through his death, and ultimately through his resurrection. And now, life has the final say. Resurrection life, right? Resurrection power. And it's a power that Jesus had demonstrated. He had declared it already to his disciples even before his own resurrection, and we see it as he miraculously raised Lazarus from the dead, which is the story we're going to look at today. For any of you that don't know that Lazarus was raised from the dead, that was a spoiler alert. I probably just spoiled the end of the story for you. But this power, right, this is a power that's available still to each one of us here this morning on this Easter day, because the truth is that the Lord Jesus is still raising people from the dead. Amen? So let's pray and just ask that the Lord would bless and anoint his word this morning. Father, we are so thankful to be here today, Lord. We're thankful for the opportunity to come and to praise and to worship and to celebrate the victory of your son, Jesus, over death, Lord. And we thank you for the power, Lord. We thank you for the resurrection. We thank you for your word, and we pray that your spirit would be our teacher, Lord. Guide us into truth, we pray. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So we've seen recently, if you've been with us, our study of Matthew on Sunday mornings, that the raising of Lazarus wasn't actually Jesus' last miracle before the cross, but it certainly was his greatest miracle. It's the seventh, it's the final miracle in the selection of miracles that John chose to be in his book because it really was the climactic miracle of Jesus' entire earthly ministry. It prefigures his own resurrection. We remember from reading the gospel accounts that he'd already raised others from the dead, but what we'll see is that Lazarus was, at least to the Jews, he was even more dead than the other dead people that Jesus raised from the dead. And consequently, this was a miracle that couldn't be denied. It couldn't just be avoided by those Jewish leaders who were opposing Jesus. For the Jews, for mankind, of course for us, the significance of this miracle is absolutely unavoidable because if Jesus Christ can't do anything about death, then whatever else he can do really amounts to nothing. Death is man's last great enemy. But as we know and as we'll see, Jesus Christ has defeated this enemy totally and permanently. Now we're going to jump into chapter 11. We're going to join Jesus about three short months before he would go to the cross. He's ministering in the wilderness across the Jordan. It's that same place that John the Baptist had been ministering. Our text today actually begins in verse 17, but the background, right, or the, the start of the story begins back in verse 1, where we read that a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. It was that Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair whose brother Lazarus was sick. So Bethany, as we saw just last week, it's a small village. It's located about a mile and a half southeast of Jerusalem on the east side of the Mount of Olives. And in this small village lived a man named Lazarus. And he lived there with his two sisters, Mary and Martha. And of course, we all think about the story in Luke chapter 10, where Jesus was welcomed into their home. And we have that contrast, that familiar story of Mary sitting at Jesus' feet while Martha busily serves and works. And throughout the gospel accounts, we see these three individuals, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, were very special people to the Lord. Had they not only had opened up their hearts to him, but they had opened up their home to him. It was where he stayed when he was usually at Jerusalem. And it's interesting, the name Lazarus actually means whom God helps. So surely we can expect great things right during this dire time of need for him. And therefore, it says in verse 3, that the sisters sent to him, or sent to Jesus, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. So they send this messenger out to Jesus, because surely they figure he can save our dear brother. In verse 4, it says that when Jesus heard it, He said, this sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. And it's so often true in the economy of God that our misery is an opportunity for God's ministry to take place 
in our lives. And what Jesus knew is that the end result of this situation would not ultimately be the death of Lazarus. But instead, this was an opportunity for the Father to be glorified and for Jesus' authority and his ministry to be unquestionably validated and to be verified just months before he would go to the cross. It was an opportunity as well for the faith of his followers to be strengthened. And so too, isn't that so often the case with us? Jesus will never waste any opportunity to minister to us, to grow and to strengthen our developing faith and to bring glory to the Father in the process. And so often what we see in our lives as tragedy, he uses for teaching. So in verse 5, it says, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he rushed right there to... Oh, no, it doesn't say that. It says that he stayed two more days in the place where he was. And then after this, he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. Now, interesting, it says that it was because of his great love for Mary and for Martha and for Lazarus, because of that, Jesus delayed his departure to go back to Bethany. And we'll understand why, of course, as we continue on. But due to this delay, right, a day to hear of it, two days waiting, and another day to walk back to Bethany. As we jump down now to verse 17, we have Lazarus languishing there. And verse 17 says that when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb four days. So when Jesus arrived, Lazarus was dead. He was actually four days dead. And verse 14 tells us Jesus knew that Lazarus was dead even before he finally sent, set out to go to him. In fact, I believe that with some investigation of timelines and burial practices and all these things we're not going to talk about this morning, but we can conclude that Jesus knew in his spirit even days earlier when he first heard that Lazarus was sick. He knew that he had already died. So the important question, of course, is why did Jesus wait a total of four full days to come and to raise him from the dead? Just how dead did Lazarus actually need to be right, for Jesus to do what he wanted to do? And the answer is he needed to be really, really dead. <laughs> and here's why. There was a Jewish superstition in that time that said that the soul of a dead person stayed near the grave for three days, hoping to return to the body. And so therefore, it was generally accepted that after four days, there would then be no chance of a hope of a resurrection. Right? So if Jesus had arrived any earlier, it would have been too easy for people to explain away this miracle based on this superstition. And so I love this because just as is so often the case in our own lives, the stage was now perfectly set, right? The circumstances were critical for Jesus to do what only Jesus could do and for God to get the glory through it. In verse 18, it says that now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles away, and many of the Jews had joined the women around Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. 
Then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him. But Mary was sitting in the house. Then Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, the name Bethany, interestingly, in this case, means house of misery. So Jesus arrives at the house of misery where people have been mourning the loss of beloved Lazarus. Right? Martha, the worker, goes out to meet Jesus. Mary, the worshiper, sits at home waiting. And some would suggest that in Martha's words here that she's upset with Jesus. It's almost one of these, where were you, Lord? And yet I, as I read it, I see remorse rather than rebuke. She's naturally grieving the loss of her brother. And even if there may have been a tinge of disappointment in her statement, I think that there was also an evidence of faith. Because she really believed that Jesus could have healed her brother if he had been there. And watch next, because she's going to continue with this further faith-filled declaration. She says in verse 22, but even now, I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. And I love this verse because if she was in any way disappointed with Jesus, then here she's exclaiming that she still believes in him despite her disappointment. And I think that that is a, a, a great and a searching encouragement for each one of us to consider as it relates to our own lives. Here we see this little spark of faith that's still very much alive and well there in Martha's heart. And we're going to see next the way that Jesus is going to respond to that faith. In verse 23, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. So Jesus gives this incredible promise right here to Martha. But while he was speaking of this immediate situation, she assumes him to be talking about the future resurrection that's coming in the last day. So maybe she thinks that Jesus is just trying to comfort her in that same way that we would say to somebody, you know what, you're going to see them one day again in heaven. But I think more than just a simple misunderstanding, I really think that Martha is making a mistake here that we can all so often make, especially during those seasons when we're in great disappointment or in discouragement. And that mistake is that rather than embracing a promise from the Lord with joy and with this expectancy, Martha looks at it merely as some kind of a theological principle. I don't know if you're ever guilty of that. I know that I am. And the, you know, the Lord will open up a promise to us in the word and he'll speak to us in our spirit about a, a, a situation or a, a specific struggle or a relationship. And we'll think, yeah, you know, I know all that is probably true in heaven. But that promise certainly couldn't apply to me here on earth at this time. That really can't be true for me. After all, there's no way the Lord is really going to supernaturally intervene here. 
There's no way he's going to supernaturally bless or heal or restore or help. There must be some other theological or typological sense that God's speaking to me. It's just too good to be true. But, but never forget, folks, especially on a day like today, that God can work. God will. He wants to work supernaturally in our lives each and every day, including today. See, Martha doesn't have a problem with the idea that Jesus can work in the future, but it seems she has a problem in limiting how much Jesus wants to work or can work in her life right now. So let's not be guilty of sharing in this mindset of Martha, right? We need to expect and trust God for great things today, even here today, this morning, because it's only when we do that Then we start to open ourselves up personally to his presence and his power in our lives. Because look what he goes on to say in verse 25 and 26. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. And he who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. He says, you're talking theologically, Martha, but I'm relating to you personally. He says, I am the resurrection. I am what you need right now. And for you Bible students, you know, this is the fifth of those great I am statements that Jesus makes and John includes. And it isn't just a future promise. It is a present reality. And in making this radical claim about the resurrection, Jesus brings the whole teaching of the resurrection out of the Old Testament shadows and right into the light and into the life of this new covenant that he's establishing. He's saying, look, you've been taught and you believe that there is this great and glorious day coming of resurrection at the end of the age when all believers are going to be raised in their bodies from the grave. And Martha, you're right. But here's the mystery, Martha. I am the arrival of that day. You thought that that day would come far off in the future, but it has come and I am that day. And so what Jesus is doing, he's declaring once and for all a number of important things. First of all, that death is real. Secondly, that there is life after death and that the body is one day going to be raised by the power of God. But he also takes all of those important teachings out of a book. He takes them off of the page and he puts them into a person. He puts them right into himself. And while we are so thankful to God for the Bible and for what the Bible teaches, we all realize, of course, that we're saved by the Redeemer, Jesus Christ, and not simply by some kind of a doctrine written in a book. It's like when you're sick, you want a doctor, not a medical journal. Right? When you're being sued, you want a lawyer, not a law book. Right? And in the same way, when you're facing your last enemy, death, you want the Savior, not just what's written about him, even in the Bible. The Bible says of itself that in Christ, every doctrine or all the teachings are made personal. 
And not only do we see that he declared these important teachings and that he put them right into a person, but I think the greatest implication of his statement and what I really want us to know this morning is that he moved that doctrine of the resurrection out of the future and brought it right here into the present. She knew from the Old Testament that there would be a resurrection. Again, she just didn't believe that Jesus could help her now. Martha was looking to the future. Right, knowing that Lazarus would raise. In verse 37, we'll see that her friends were looking to the past. They're going to say, hey, he could have prevented Lazarus from dying. But Jesus takes all of their attention and he tries to put it right here into the present because wherever Jesus is, God's resurrection power is available right now. That's resurrection truth for an Easter morning, and it's a resurrection truth for every day after. In whatever situation you are facing, in whatever the area of your greatest need, in whatever that struggle is that you're battling, Jesus can bring new life and provide healing. Paul to the Philippians said that I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. There is power in the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's power to save. There's power over sin. There's power to heal and to make whole. There's power to restore and power to rebuild lives that are broken. And the truth is that there is no sin. There is no problem that is too great that the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ cannot overcome it. And the resurrection of Jesus that we're celebrating here this morning is proof of that statement. To the Ephesians, Paul said, I pray that you will begin to understand how incredibly great his power is to help those who believe in him. It is that same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the place of honor at God's right hand in heaven. So you may be here this morning and you may feel four days dead, just like Lazarus. You may feel like you're buried in a tomb of sin and of shame and of regret. But Jesus says, I am the resurrection. I am the life. And that very same power that resurrected him from the dead, the Apostle Paul says, is available right now to us through Jesus to resurrect us and to resurrect and to save us. Jesus didn't claim to, to have resurrection and life. He didn't claim to understand the secrets about resurrection and life. Dramatically, he says that he what? He is the resurrection and the life. And he alone then is the one that can bring life out of death. And he does it not only eternally, but he's here to do it presently. Right, to transform all of those struggles and even those strongholds in our lives into strengths. A person can become so selfish and self-focused that they are effectively dead to the needs of others around them. A person can become so insensitive that they are dead to the feelings of others. They can become so entrapped and entangled by addiction or ensnared by sin that they are dead to the reality, the possibility of life apart from those things. 
A person becomes so burdened and overwhelmed by guilt and shame, they can become so hopeless and discouraged that they're dead to the possibility of hope and change. And all of these things are spiritual death. But Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ can resurrect each and every one of those individuals and he can resurrect you here this morning. And the witness of history is that he has resurrected millions and millions of people just like them and people just like you and people just like me. In 2 Corinthians it says that therefore if anyone is in Christ he is what? He's a new creation. That old things have passed away and all things have become new. And Jesus' resurrection touch has not lost its healing power. Right? Power not just to heal our lives, but power to save our souls. Because the resurrection of Jesus provides us with peace presently as well as hope eternally doesn't it? Because our fears for the future are overcome completely by our faith in him. As the resurrection and the life, he's the champion over death. In verse 26, he says that we will never die who believe in him. Right? We'll continue in life by simply making this instant transition at the point of our death. We simply make an instant transition from an old life in a fleshly body to this new life in this wonderful spiritual reality. That's what Jesus is saying here. He's providing true hope and true comfort. He says, Martha, your brother Lazarus isn't actually dead. He just moved. And he moved to a much better neighborhood. Amen? He moved to a new and a brighter and a better reality. There's an excerpt that I read. It said that before his death, Winston Churchill became a follower of Jesus Christ. Not surprisingly, he made his own funeral arrangements. And when, the benedict or when they said the benediction, he had arranged for a bugler high in the dome of St. Paul's Cathedral to play taps, the universal signal that the day is over. And after he finished, there was a long pause. Then a bugler on the side of the dome played Reveille, the signal of a new day beginning. It was Churchill's way of saying that while it was good night here, it was good morning there. See, Churchill believed, and his confident hope of victory over death was based on Jesus, who was the resurrection and the life. To know Jesus is to know resurrection and life. To have Jesus is to have resurrection and the life and to have it even now in this life as well as eternally. So we have to ask this morning what Jesus next asks at the end of 26, verse 26. He says to Martha, do you believe this? Right? He's challenging Martha. He's confronting us, not to a debate, not to some sort of intellectual agreement, but he's challenging us to belief. Because when confronted with the claims of Christ, it's not enough just to intellectually acknowledge the facts. Not just to agree with who he said he is historically or even theologically, but we need to believe it. We need to put our trust in it personally. 
and totally. And in verse 27, she said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who has come into the world. What a great answer. She didn't just believe in the promises of Jesus. She believed in the person of Jesus. Everything that he was, Lord, Christ, Son of God. And it's interesting because this very simple reply actually carries a kind of a complex commitment because her words there, I believe, are written in what's called the perfect tense. It indicates kind of a fixed and a settled state of being. Literally what she said is, I have believed and I will continue to believe. And this is the basis of receiving the resurrection life. The basis then of experiencing resurrection power. It happens when we believe in Jesus, when we accept everything that he said about himself as absolutely true, when we stake our lives and our eternal destiny on that in perfect trust. The fact that he died for our sins, that he paid a debt that we couldn't pay, and that we've been forgiven now based on his sacrifice. And when we do that, we immediately enter into two new relationships. First of all, with God. Because when we believe that God is who Jesus tells us that God is, then we become absolutely sure of God's love for us. We become sure that he is above all a God of redemption, that he's not some sort of angry deity looking down for waiting for us to trip up so that he condemn us to eternity. And then in that, in our, in our relationship now with God and the love of who he is, our fear of death vanishes. But in addition to that, we enter into an entirely new relationship with life itself. See, because when we accept Jesus' way of living, when we take his commands as our directives, when we realize that he's there to help us live out these things that he asks us to do, and we can do it walking in this resurrection power, then our life starts to become an entirely new thing. Then our life starts to have this new loveliness and this whole new charm and a whole new character and a whole new strength. Or we accept Jesus' way, our life becomes a wonderful thing. And when we first believe in Jesus, we accept what he says about God the Father. We accept what he says about life. We stake our lives and everything on it. In reality, we are resurrected right then and there. We are resurrected because we're freed from the fear that's characteristic of a godless life. We're freed from the frustration that's character of a sin-ridden life. And we're freed from the futility of a Christless life. And our new lives are raised right out of that death of sin. And we become so rich that we know that we'll never die. But instead, we start to look at death differently. We start to see even our own death as simply a transition to a higher life. And we start to walk and we start to grow in this new faith life. And we start to watch Jesus working miracles each and every day, not just in our life, but in the lives of those we love. And that's what Martha was just about to witness here. 
Because although she now had started to embrace this miracle of resurrection life personally, she had no idea what was about to happen for Lazarus. Look at verse 28 through 31. It says that when she had said these things, she went her way and secretly called Mary, her sister, saying, the teacher has come and is calling for you. As soon as she heard that, she arose quickly and came to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the town, but was in the place where Martha met him. And then the Jews who were with her, or with Mary, in the house and comforting her, when they saw that Mary rose up quickly and went out, they followed her, saying, oh, she is going to the tomb to weep there. So when Mary gets up and tries to go meet privately and personally with Jesus, all of her friends sort of misunderstood. They thought she was going to the tomb to weep, so they follow along. But isn't it awesome? Because now everybody will be there to witness the glory of the Son of God. Verse 32 says that then when Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet, where we always see her. She's saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, I get the sense that maybe Mary didn't say a whole lot more simply because she was so overcome with sorrow. And therefore, it says in verse 33 that when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her weeping, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said, Lord, come and see. So Jesus sees their distress Right? He becomes angry. It says he groaned in the spirit. And literally in the language, it means that he was angry or indignant. There was kind of this violent agitation of his spirit, not necessarily from anger, but more so from grief. Right? Jesus saw the sorrow of others and he was moved. Right? He was angry at the effects and the way that sin had ravaged his beautiful creation. He was upset at the tyranny of Satan who had brought sorrow and death to God's people through sin. You know that death was never a part of God's original intent for his perfect creation, but it was brought about simply as a consequence. It was part of the decay that came into the world because of the sinful rebellion of man. In Romans 5, it explains that sin entered the world and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. Death is an enemy, right? And Satan has always used the fear of death as a terrible weapon. He's used it to drive this crippling wedge between people and God. And yet what we know is that Jesus was sent to deal with this domination of death once and for all. I love what one author wrote about this. He said that Christ does not go to the tomb as an idle spectator, but like a wrestler preparing for the contest. Therefore, no wonder that he groans again for the violent tyranny of death, which he had to overcome, stood before his eyes. And then... He makes his way to the tomb of Lazarus, and in verse 35 it says, Jesus wept. This is both the shortest and I think one of the deepest verses in all the scriptures. If you're looking to start memorizing scripture, this is a great place to start. Amen. And again, according to the language here, 
the weeping that Jesus was doing was a deep, a profound, and a silent, but an uncontrollable weeping. It wasn't like the loud wailing of the mourners, but it was a weeping, it was deep, and it revealed the true humanity of our Savior. Because the Bible says that he's entered into all of our experiences, and he knows exactly how we feel. In Isaiah, it says that he was a man of sorrows, that he was acquainted with grief. And this was something extraordinary at the time, because in the mind of the ancient world, one of the primary characteristics of their gods was what the Greeks called apatheia, right? This total inability for the god to feel any emotion whatsoever. And so the Greeks especially believed in a passionless and a compassionless God in the very same way that so many of the false religious systems still believe today. But the fact is, that's not the God of heaven. And that's not the God of the Bible. That's not the God who is really there and who really weeps with us and who really feels for us in our pain. That God cares about you. So Jesus wept with those who wept for Lazarus, well, with, you know, about Lazarus' death. But I think in a sense, there's a sense in which Jesus was also weeping for Lazarus. Because Jesus knew that he was about to call his friend back from paradise. That he was about to call Lazarus back into this wicked world where he would live for a while longer and then have to die again. You see, Jesus knew, and only Jesus knew, exactly what Lazarus was about to leave behind. In verse 36, it says that then the Jews said, see how he loved him. And some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? I think the crowd is genuinely sorry and, and sympathetic. It's like they're saying, wow, with all of the wonderful things that Jesus did, he still couldn't prevent death. And yet they're in for quite a surprise, aren't they? Because now here we come to the main event, verse 38, 39. It says that then Jesus again, groaning in himself, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. And Martha, the sister of him who was dead, said to him, Lord, by this time there is a stench, for he has been dead four days. Now imagine the scene. Jesus gets down there and makes this request. Everybody must have thought this was a pretty strange thing to ask. They all knew what Martha said, that no doubt in a hot climate like theirs, the body of Lazarus, right, four days dead, would have by now taken on a very distinct odor. And in fact, if any of you use the original King James Version, in there it says, Lord, by this time he stinketh. <laughs> People probably thought that maybe he just wa he wanted to see his friend one last time, but Jesus, of course, had other plans. And in order for those plans to be accomplished, in order for God to be glorified, the stone had to go. 
And I think that that's important for us, even on an Easter morning, is that sometimes, you know, the Lord wants to do something in our lives. He wants to release resurrection power. He wants to bring life in an area where there was only death. But before he does, so often he'll say, hey, you need to roll away that stone. We need to expose the problem. You need to give me total access to the situation. And we say, oh, no, Lord. Not that. I'm embarrassed about that. I'm ashamed. I'm ashamed of that, Lord. That part of my life, it stinketh, right? And yet he assures us, just like he says to Martha, it said, Jesus said to her in verse 40, Did I not say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? He says, Look, I gave you a promise, Martha, but here's the prerequisite to the promise. You need to roll away the stone. Even though you and I both know that what's in there stinks, you need to let me get in there and you need to let me deal with it. Now, do you think Jesus could have rolled the stone away himself? Of course he could have rolled the stone away himself. But here he says to poor Martha, just the same way that he says to you and the same way that he says to me, I want you to roll it away. Because he needed her to be part of this miracle. He needed her to participate in this miracle. And it takes faith, doesn't it, to respond in obedience to this kind of a crazy command when the Lord makes it to us. But it's our faith that relies on God's promises and then releases God's power into our lives. And that's when we see these resurrection miracles start to happen. Martha relents. Verse 41 and 42, it says that they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. And I know you always hear me. But because of the people who are standing by, I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. So we don't see Jesus praying publicly very frequently. However, here, he actually prays audibly. He says, Father, I'm praying aloud so that everyone who's here and who's watching is going to know and understand what's happening and so that you'll be glorified by what's about to go down. Verse 43 and 44, Now when he had said these things, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he who had died came out bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was wrapped with a cloth. Now, can you picture this? Right? Bound, blindfolded, Lazarus comes, probably hopping, right, out of the tomb, and no doubt jaws drop everywhere. Back in John chapter 5, Jesus had said that men would hear his voice and that they would come out of the graves. It prompted Augustine once to write of this verse that if Jesus had not said Lazarus' name, Everyone would have come right out of the graves, right? Jesus had just resurrected Lazarus from the dead, from being four days dead, right? Really dead. And an entire crowd of friends and family and followers had all just seen it happen. It happened just steps outside of the city of Jerusalem, very shortly before his own death. Jesus holds the power over death, and he has the power to give life, and he had just publicly demonstrated it here 
beyond a shadow of a doubt. He had conquered man's greatest fear. There was a story of a man who was once talking to a Hindu priest. And the man asked, could you say I'm the resurrection and the life? And the priest said, yes, I could say that. And the man said, but could you make anyone believe it? And for some reason, there was dead silence. You know, as we finish up this morning, I want us to consider quickly what Jesus says here in this next verse. Look at his final words in verse 44. He just resurrected Lazarus, and it says there at the end that Jesus said to them, loose him and let him go. So here's Lazarus, right? And Jesus turns to the disciples, to the followers, and to his family. And he basically says, look, I resurrected Lazarus, but I'm giving you the privilege and the responsibility of loosening him. And I point this out for anyone here this morning who may feel like you're four days dead, like Lazarus. Or maybe you still feel like you're hopping around, but you're still bound up in grave clothes, right? Because I believe that what Jesus is asking these people to do is precisely what happens Sunday morning after Sunday morning, Wednesday night after Wednesday night, small group after small group, right here in the local church community. People are born again, right? They receive this resurrection life from Jesus. And then the Lord says to all of us who are around those people, he says it to you and he says it to me. He says, I resurrected them. Now you loose them. And you do it by praying for them. And you do it by standing with them. And you do it by sharing with them. What a privilege that is. We've lost sight of that, I think, sometimes in the church because the church isn't a police station. The church is what? It's a hospital. And we're not here to condemn you. We're not here to wrap more grave clothes around you, but we're here to be a part of the process as the Lord heals you because we love him and he, and he loves us and we want to share that love with others. So theologically, right, as we reflect on this chapter, of course, we're reminded of this great victory of Jesus, the power over death, which was going to be revealed ultimately just three short months from then in his resurrection, which we celebrate today. It's the cornerstone of our faith. And certainly if that's all that we were to get out of this chapter, that would be enough. Amen. And yet he gives us so much more Because this morning, I believe he wants us to know that when we find ourselves confronted by disease and disappointment, discouragement, even by death, that our only encouragement is to trust in the only one who has ever overcome each and every one of those things. In Psalm 50, it says, call upon me in the day of trouble and I will deliver you and you shall glorify me, right? Remembering that our, our greatest fears, that final enemy was dealt with on the cross and that real resurrection life and that power is promised to us because of the resurrection of Jesus. And the answer isn't some thing, the answer is some one. Right? Jesus said, I am the resurrection, it's me. 
I'm who you're looking for, and I want to, and I'm able to work in your life today. And who else is there that could ever say that? Very quick story. There's a Muslim man in Africa who became a Christian. And some of his friends were asking him why. And he answered, well, it's kind of like this. Suppose you were going down a road, and suddenly the road forked in two directions, and you didn't know which way to go. If you met two men at the fork, one was dead and one was alive, which one would you ask to show you the way? Amen. Father, we are so thankful, Lord, for the resurrection of your son, Jesus. Lord, we are so thankful for what we celebrate today as he truly conquered sin and conquered death rising from the grave, proving once and for all that his sacrifice was sufficient, Lord, that our sin debt was paid. Lord, and beyond that, he provides that same power to us who believe in him. Father, we are undone as we think about this. Lord, this morning we pray, Lord, if there are any of those here this morning who don't yet know that saving grace, Lord, who don't yet know that resurrection power, Lord, we pray that today would be the day that they would reach out, Lord, that they would cry out to your son Jesus to be saved, Lord, placing their faith, their trust, or their confidence in him and in his sacrifice that they would receive that new resurrection life that power that new relationship with life that we're promised if any of you are here this morning and that's you and you've never made that commitment to the Lord we want to give you an opportunity to do that even now this morning Lord, even here as part of this service. If you're here and you want to make a declaration of faith, perhaps for the first time, perhaps you're not sure if it took the last time, we want to pray with you. We want to be here for you. If that's anyone here this morning, you can simply raise your hand we'll pray together we'll have prayer counselors that are available as we worship we can pray with you explain things to you help you to understand I would encourage you don't leave here this resurrection Easter morning having not done that Father, we pray that your spirit would be working in any hearts this morning who are unsure. Lord, where there's doubt, where there's fear, we pray that you would replace that doubt and fear with perfect faith. Father, we thank you, Lord, and we do praise you in Jesus' precious name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Let's stand up this morning and let's worship the Lord together.